Good morning. Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first days until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I said, how I long for all of you. <laughs> and this for my prayer that your love may, be a, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Well, welcome once again, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Johnny, and I am one of the pastors here. Happy to be with you. As Heather mentioned, uh, today is the first Sunday of Lent, which is the 40-day period that focuses on Jesus's journey towards the cross. It culminates in Good Friday at the end of the Passion Week, and as Heather mentioned, it prepares us to celebrate and to enter in and to reflect on and to appreciate the life, death, love, and resurrection of Jesus. And I've mentioned this to you before, so if you've been here, you've heard this before, but I did not grow up in a particularly liturgical tradition. We didn't participate in Lent. We definitely didn't participate in Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday was very spooky to us as a kid growing up. It was just not things that were familiar to me. And so I came to those traditions as an adult and have found them to be very helpful. This is the reason we enter into them and the reason that we participate in them as a community is not because we believe they are particularly mystic or sacred, but because they are helpful or can be helpful rhythms that, for me, help me pay attention. They help me enter into the story to focus on this journey that Jesus is taking, to focus on the story of the gospel at the very heart of the season of Lent, to reorient myself a bit around this Easter resurrection good news story. There's a lot that goes on in life. Lent shares overlap with tax season. And I just want to think about anything else other than tax. You know what I mean? Like, I just want some other thing to be orienting my mind, to be paying attention to, to draw me into this good news story. Historically, Lent was about preparation. So people would prepare during the season of Lent for baptism or to join a Christian community or maybe even to reconcile a relationship that had been broken. They would do the work and prepare and heal and talk to one another and discern together as a community as they entered into Easter. It feels similar to me is that it's a season of preparation where I just prepare and think and dream and pray and pay attention to something that often is missed. And to guide us this year throughout the season of Lent, we are going to be walking through 
the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is a little letter that comes in the New Testament. We'll talk about it in a second, dive into some of the details of it. But it's a small little letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church in a city called Philippi, and it's just four chapters. But we're going to spend the next six weeks diving into this book. And if you include Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we will look at the book of Philippians eight times. It's a beautiful story. And though it is short, it contains some massive ideas about God, about what it means to be the people of God, and what it means to share in this common life together called church and Christian existence. And as we explore it, I think it has the power to invite us into something really wonderful and beautiful and a little risky oriented around the story of the cross and what it looks like for us to be a people of the cross. And so to help us kind of in this conversation, uh, we'll be in it for a while. And then if you go to our website, missioslc.com backslash Philippians, we've tried to compile a few resources, mostly through the Bible Project. They did a bunch of extended resources on the book of Philippians, videos and articles and reading. And my suggestion to you as we go through this is to access some of those resources Maybe read the book of Philippians. It's four chapters. You can do it in probably 15 minutes. And then read it along with us slowly to hear the invitation that the Apostle Paul is offering to the church of Philippi and by extension, us. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is a man named Michael Gorman, and he says that in Philippians we get the very foundation or bedrock of Paul's theology of God. And I think that's true. It'll shape our thinking. It'll shape how we see and envision God. And so I invite us as we go through this conversation to read this book from cover to cover, or I guess from letter to end of letter, and then to dwell in it slowly. So with that said, let us jump right into it in Philippians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you don't own a Bible, just so you know, those ones that are available, that's uh, for you. You just take it. Uh, or you can follow along on your phone or on the screen above you. So Philippians chapter 1 starts this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This first moment in the book of Philippians, sometimes your Bible will call a salutation. The best way to think about it is this would be what's like on the front of an envelope. So if a, this is a letter and the letter was being delivered somewhere, this is what's on the very front of it. It's who it's from, where it's going, and to whom it has been written. So you could open it up and you'd be like, okay, yeah, it's from Paul and Timothy, and it's to me. I'm the church in Philippi. Great. And these letters, the New Testament is filled with them. If you ever read your New Testament, most of it is letters from church leaders to various churches in the region, very similar to the letters that we would write today, with one major distinction. These letters were not meant to be read by a person quietly in your room. They were meant to be read out loud to a community of people who were sitting around a table sharing a meal together. And read isn't maybe the right word. They were intended to be performed in front of a group of people who were eating a meal together. If you were the person who had delivered this letter, you would read it yourself first. You would study this letter. You might even memorize portions of this letter. And then when you got to the recipients, which is this church in Philippi, think about a, a group of people in a home around a table. 
you would perform the letter in the words of Paul and Timothy, trying to capture the essence and flow and dialogue and humor and moments of quiet and introspection. You would try to perform it in such a way that it was like Paul was delivering the letter himself, preaching this sermon or giving this talk himself to this church. So the letter was written by Paul and Timothy, delivered to the church at Philippi, and then performed, read out loud to the church. And then they would sit at a table, hear these words, kind of like we're doing today. And then like we do at a home church midweek, they would then discuss the letter and what the implications of the letter are for their collective life together. And what does it mean to be the church at Philippi? And what does Paul's and Timothy's instructions mean for our daily life? And should we do this? And should we respond this way? And was that joke funny or was it just biting? Or, you know, like you're like wrestling through all the things that happen when a friend sends you a letter. That's how these New Testament letters were to be written. This letter specifically is written to a church in a region called Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. And this city of Philippi would have sat on the Aegean Sea and would be beautiful. It'd be like a beautiful kind of like resorty, beachy town where you would go and mostly retire. Philippi was like the Florida of the ancient world. And I, <laughs> I mean that in more than one way. Philippi was the Florida of the ancient world in that it was a retirement community, and specifically, it was a retirement community for Roman soldiers. So Philippi was a deeply conservative place. It was a deeply nationalist place. It was a place deeply committed to the worship of the Roman emperor and the emperor cult of Rome. It's all these former Roman soldiers who had served and committed their life to the Roman legion, and they had given themselves to this and been trained in this and paid for this. And in retirement, they got a pension. And so they would go to Philippi, set up a beach shanty, and live their retirement life there and participate in Roman festivities for veterans and former folks. And the church at Philippi gets planted in Acts chapter 16, which I I say this a lot uh, about stories in Acts. The the moment where the church at Philippi gets planted in Acts 16 is genuinely my favorite story in the book of Acts. You can really, I am committed to that conclusion. And we've talked about it a lot here. It's the moment when Paul tries to go to Asia and the Spirit stops him from going. We don't know anything else about that moment except the Spirit stops him from going, which is weird in and of itself. And then he sees a vision of a man in Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, crying out for help. So Paul goes to this region, and he meets a woman named Lydia, who is already praying by the river, and thus begins the church of Philippi. In a Roman province that's formerly veterans, we learn that the ministry of the gospel goes really slowly. It kind of runs into this like emperor worship, this cult worship of the emperor, which is all around strength and power and violence and glory. But the church gets rooted in this prayer circle of women who've been meeting by the river and gets planted in Lydia's home. And Lydia and these women become the infrastructure and leadership of this early church in Philippi. Paul plants it hands the keys over probably to Lydia and her prayer circle. 
And then he moves on, which is the way Paul works. He's an apostle, he plants churches, does and then he bounces and writes letters. And as things go, six to ten years later, Paul finds himself under house arrest for having done this exact thing, preaching the gospel in places where Caesar did not like that message. And so he's put under house arrest. And this little church in Philippi hears that Paul is under house arrest. And so they send aid to Paul. They send food and money because in that situation, similar to our own situation today, if you're under house arrest, you pay the bills. You provide your own food, you pay for the services, you pay for the Roman guards who are guarding you. It's all on you, which is actually very similar to house arrest today. And so Philippi hears this, and they're like, oh my gosh, our friend Paul, he can't work, he can't make money, so we're going to send him aid. So they send him food and money through a person named Epaphrodites, who we'll read about later. And when Epaphrodites gets there, Paul is so like moved by the affection of the Philippians that he decides to write this letter. That's the impetus for writing the letter. So it makes Philippians kind of a unique letter in the New Testament. There's no crisis. Most of the letters, if you've read them, it's like someone is doing something very bad. And Paul's like, you got to stop that. Don't touch that. You know, like, it's like, that's the kind of the context of these letters. But Philippians is a group of people who love Paul very much and send him aid. And Paul moved deeply by the affection and provision of this small community, writes a letter mostly thanking them for their service and their love and their affection and their provision for him. You can hear it immediately in this first chapter. After the salutation, he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the tender affection of Christ Jesus. I feel like if you can just get your mind into the, the nature of this letter, you can hear Paul's emotion. Plants this church some six years before. It's hard fought. It's a struggle. The people who lead this church probably struggle against this like Roman imperial cult probably excluded from culture in many ways, excluded from life in the town village because they don't hail Caesar, they hail King Jesus instead. And King Jesus looks so different than King Caesar. And Paul, in his own way, is also suffering for the same kind of thing. He's been imprisoned by Caesar for this message. He probably feels alone, maybe a little forgotten worries how he's going to provide for himself. And all of a sudden, this little church from six to ten years before is like, hey, we remember you. We're with you. We sympathize with you and we empathize with you and we share this experience with you. This shared experience of suffering with Christ and there's this theme that will show up again and again in Philippians, this shared, strange joy of suffering for Christ. We know these things together. We've had this journey, and so we are with you. 
And it's that shared experience, that shared joy, that shared love, that shared partnership, that shared suffering, that becomes the central theme for Paul's letter to the Philippians. And maybe the easiest way to see this theme playing out throughout the book of Philippians is with the Greek word that Paul uses again and again. It shows up in every single chapter of the book. And it's the Greek word koinonia, or its root form, koinos. And oftentimes that word is translated fellowship, which is a good translation of it. It does mean to fellowship, to hang out, to share a meal, to have coffee together. But it has maybe more depth to it than when we hear the word fellowship. I just want to show it to you in context of each moment that it's used so you can kind of get a sense of how this word is being used. So in 1 verse 5, chapter 1 verse 5, Paul uses koinonia to describe you are for your partnership in the gospel. He's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he says, you are my partners in God's grace. Again, it's that word koinonia. In 2 verse 1, he says, any partnership with the Spirit. Again, it's that word koinonia. In 3, verse 10, I have a little bit longer one here. He says, I want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation of his suffering. Again, the word koinonia. And then finally, in chapter 4, he says, shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Again, that word koinonia. In every single chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul uses this word, to describe something that is happening in the community and something that they are sharing together and something that unites them together and something that he's going to build his bigger message on. And it's something about sharing, about partnering, about participating together. And sometimes when he uses the word, the focus is on their like earthly partnership together, that they've given him money, and so he's like, you've shared with me in this. Sometimes it is in their shared experience of suffering, that we have this shared fellowship in this work. Sometimes it's in their prayers and in their provision that he'll use this phrase. But for Paul, there is a deeper kind of fellowship happening in the book of Philippians. A deeper kind of fellowship possible in the life of the Christian community. And it is participation or sharing the life of Christ together. This theme of sharing or participating in the life, death of Jesus is the foundation of the letter to the Philippians. And the very heartbeat of this book comes in Philippians chapter 2. This is poem that is so beautiful and so dense, Heather's going to preach it instead of me. (laughs) But I want to read it to you so you can get a sense of what is happening in this moment. The poem begins kind of with like a prelude in Philippians 2, verse 1 through 4. Paul says this, If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, koinonia, Any tender affection and sympathy make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You can just hear all this like sharing language, this like similar language that we are fellowshipping or sharing or partnering together in something deep here, a mindset, an orientation, a way of viewing, an imagination. 
that leads to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. And then he goes on to say this. He says, share something. Share deeply. And then he says, let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who because he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a human. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We share we koinonia, we have fellowship or partnership or participation in the life and way and love and movement of Christ. And for Paul, the key thing that we share in is the emptying of Christ. It's the word that he uses here, but Christ emptied himself taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and even becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ gave something up, and Paul is like, that's the thing that we share in. It is the descent, the downward movement, the other-oriented sacrificial love of Christ. That's the thing that we participate in together. And it is from participating in this descending movement of our God towards us that unites us together and creates the koinonia, the fellowship of our community. We share in the emptying of Christ. This moment is so beautiful because Paul is doing so much work here. But he's telling us about our God. We believe that God is revealed in servanthood. By becoming human, taking the form of a servant, Jesus becomes the ultimate revelation of God. Who God is, what God is like, is put on full display in the life, the love, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. We see who God is and are invited to live and love and participate in the very nature of our God. To be like Jesus, other-oriented and self-sacrificial. To participate in his way and to move downward. This is who our God is, and this is what it means to be his people. Now, this is a <clears throat> tricky message for our own culture, in many ways, for the same reasons that this was a tricky message for the Philippians' culture. Because it sort of runs counter the narratives that we have been well discipled in. As we talked about in Philippi, the primary worship there was the cult of the emperor. And that is about someone who did the opposite of this poem. Someone who ascended to godhood through strength and coercion 
and power and money and wealth and control and grandeur. And the invitation for disciples of this cult was that you could do likewise, that you could ascend to higher positions of power and glory and grandeur and maybe even godhood through power. And here, to this culture, Paul is like, how about instead of that, we worship a God who descends away from all of those things? Who, instead of moving up, moves down. Instead of accumulating more, gives away. And what if the invitation for us as his people is not to move up towards God, not to try to find God in the heavens or in the palaces or in the money or in the wealth, but actually to, like him, descend downward? an other-oriented, sacrificial love. I don't think it's hard to imagine why that message struggled to gain momentum in Philippi. And I think it's the same reason it struggles to gain momentum in our own culture. We are more like Philippi than we like to admit. It is a counter and revolutionary and radical notion that God is at the lower places, not the higher ones. And that we, if we want to live his life and join his way, would seek him in those places too. And then Paul goes on to say one of my favorite things about what happens if we are willing to participate in this kind of radical sacrificial, other-oriented life. He says in 2 verse 15, if you live this way, you will shine like stars amongst them. I love that line. That in this participation in the way of Jesus, we will live something good and beautiful. That we will tell the Jesus story in our own bodies and lives and stories and maybe even potentially communities. That we will bear witness to the good and the beautiful through the ongoing work of God in and around us. And Paul is like, I know this is true because I see it in these people. You shine like stars in a culture that is obsessed with its own. You give and are bright. This is the big idea for Paul throughout this letter. Is that we can participate in the life and the love of Jesus for the good of the world. That we can be transformed more and more into Christ's likeness and in that transformation can bear witness to faithful, loving examples of God's goodness in the world around us. That it is possible. That we can live into it and grow into it more and more. That we can demonstrate the love of God. I find that so encouraging just for me personally, that Paul has this vision of our own transformation, this vision of our own participation in the way of Christ that might yield more faithful and beautiful expressions of love. This is the invitation I think we'll be on throughout this book. What does it look like to walk with Jesus in that way? What does it look like to participate in the life of Christ in this way? And what might happen to our own stories and our own lives when we do? 
Now with that, I want to return back to chapter 1. After Paul has kind of like said thank you, expressed his affection, he offers a prayer for the church at Philippi, which is often true in the letters. If you read Paul's letters, you'll get the salutation, you'll get a thank you, and then you'll get a prayer. And the prayer is often a summary of what is to come in the book, almost like a thesis statement in prayer form, but it's also something that we can just hold on to. And this prayer in Philippians is so simple and wonderful that I think it's a prayer we can make our own this season that expresses what Paul is naming here, that we are invited into participation in the life of Jesus. And here's what he writes to them. He says in verse 9 through 11, this is my prayer for you, that your love may overflow more and more. What a, what a beautiful prayer to begin with. I, I pray that our love would overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight so that you may determine, or the word there, discern, if you were with us last week at the end of our series in heart, what really matters. So that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness. This is the fruit of loving well. That you have risked towards one another, that you have loved well, that your life bears the fruit of the Spirit, that you have lived well. You may produce the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Such a simple prayer, but it's such a profound invitation for us. That your love may overflow, that it will produce insight and knowledge. I think that equation is actually really important. Love to insight. That you would know what really matters. You'd have the ability to discern and to think and to see with clarity so that we could live like Jesus in the world around us and tell his story in the world around us. This is what Paul sees happening in the lives of the Philippians and what he prays for to increase and grow. And it is my prayer for myself this season and it is my prayer for this community this season. And I encourage you, maybe even challenge you, to make this prayer your own this season. That as we orient ourselves around the cross and what the cross means about our God, self, other-oriented, self-sacrificial love, that it would invite us into a kind of overflowing love that gives us insight and discernment and the courage to live like Jesus. So I encourage you to make this prayer your own throughout this season. But I will say this is a risky prayer. It's a risky prayer to ask for love to overflow like Jesus. It's a risky thing to have our insight grow and our ability to discern grow because it will lead, I think, to that downward movement, that generosity, that service, that other-oriented love that Paul's expressed in Philippians 2. But it'll also make us shine like stars, Missio. 
to be beautiful expressions of the good news of Jesus that we have been given and made carriers of. So, Monsieur, would you take this prayer and make it your own this season as we orient ourselves around this story of Jesus and what it looks like to participate with him? And would you begin just by bringing this prayer to this table where every single week we practice and remember that Christ has invited us to participate in him? says, take this bread, which is my body, and this cup, which is my blood. And when you take it, those are symbols and signs and gestures of our shared life with Christ. But it is not meant to stay at this table. It is always meant to send us from this table, the people who live like the table, like Jesus, in the world around us. A people who participate in Christ everywhere we go. Not because we are perfect or because we've like crushed it somehow, but because our love is beginning to overflow. Because we're beginning to live like Jesus and shine like stars. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this vision of you at the heart of Philippians. This perfect revelation of you of our God that is totally other-oriented, self-sacrificial, that is so big and so powerful, does not see power or bigness or grandeur or glory, something to be grasped or held. I think that we see a vision of you that descends towards us and moves to be with us, inviting us and beckoning us into koinonia, fellowship and participation with Jesus, would this vision of you shape our mindset, our imagination, the way we perceive the world, the way we discern in the world, and would it lead us to an active life with you in the world? So we could produce the fruits of love and Christ-likeness. So we might tell your story in and through our own. Jesus, transform us to love more and know ourselves as loved more. Jesus, we pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.